0: So, when uh, Americans fought the Revolutionary War with England, they no longer had a place, England no longer had a place to dump their convicts, and uh, by the late 18th century, 115,000 lived off of crime in London. And a lot of this was because they had changed the way land was divided. and. Um, whereas people could pretty much farm anywhere on other people's land. They changed all that to where it was cut off, and the people couldn't didn't have a place to farm, so they were poor. In in England? Specific, yeah, in yeah England. this is still okay. in England. Okay. And they were stealing from uh, each other. And so the way things were back then, they didn't uh, put people to death except for murder okay. or treason. And so... Uh, they decided to ship all these people to Australia because it had been discovered uh, some years earlier by Captain Cook, and they figured that would be a good place to put people.
1: So even so even just thieves and common criminals, not just murderers and and right. violent offenders. And when right. was this? This like.
0: was in the um, 1700s. Yeah. 1788 was the first okay. um, shipment. Right. I mean, yeah.
2: They even said William Buckley was well, his crime was what receiving a a stolen piece of cloth. Right, right. Was, he hadn't even stolen it. He had just been given it. Right. So, and, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so on the way over there, um, a, a lot of people died because of se- uh, illness on the ship. Uh, and once they got there, there were problems with everybody, with, again, with stealing. And the fact is that these were convicts and they didn't really want to work. They, reason- they chose the lives they chose was because they didn't want to work. So when they got over there and they're expected to work, uh, they weren't too happy with that. And then the other problem they had once they arrived in Australia was the Aboriginal people uh, weren't too happy to have them there. So that right. caused problems.
2: Understandably.
0: Yeah. yeah. And uh, so there was a lot of fighting and so forth. And then when the captain, this captain was a really great guy. His name was um, Philip Arthur Philip, if I haven't said that. He um, wanted to do everything he could so the Aboriginal people would get along with the other people. And, um, but it, it, he tried separating them. He tried encouraging them to go elsewhere, mm-hmm. and they didn't really care for that too much either. So they just right. kind of... Uh, the Aboriginal people were kind of a thorn in the convict side for a while. But things started to turn around when they discovered uh, coal on the beach and then they brought in merino sheep and so the australians began to farm with this uh, farm in mind and this helped so after the first few years they started uh, being able to support themselves
1: right so that and that was that was the the convicts started to be able to support themselves in the col- early colonist yeah. okay
2: and so how many was it again the first wave of uh,
1: Fourteen hundred. Fourteen hundred. Okay. Yeah. Oh wow.
0: So. And they had they had very they had several shipments over there of the people. Okay. Right. So the
1: fourteen hundred was just the initial just convicts the that, and settlers yeah. that were brought. to Later they right? brought
0: in shipments of women and okay. and so forth. So eventually they had quite a large um, group of people on the Australian island. Right.
1: Well. Yeah, and I mean that's kind of that kind of bleeds into. Um, to my topic about uh, aboriginal history both um, in relation to the penal colonies uh, when when Europe first started to settle Australia and and going forward um, all the way into the modern era um, so going back a little bit before what you had talked about with the penal colonies you know the first Australians were the Aboriginal people um, It's believed that the Aboriginal people came from Southeast Asia, um, and they've migrated via a land bridge or um, or island hopping. But it's hard to tell.
2: Were they the ones from Taiwan, the same ones
1: we, or were those from roughly later? From from roughly that—that's more Polynesia. But um, there were
2: like two area eras of migration. Right. Right.
1: So, well, most the most Pacific Islanders immigrated from some some part of Southeast Asia and Asia itself. Um, and Aboriginal peoples of Australia were no different. Um, so as I said, due to a glacial melting and, um, rising sea levels, the land bridge or islands they could have possibly hopped to Australia on, um, are now missing and we can't, we can only theorize to this day, um, how exactly the Aboriginals, um, originally reached Australia, um, so for thousands of years prior to European advancement into the Australian continent, um, there were there were many different Aboriginal clans, tons and tons of different clans of Aboriginal peoples over the entire continent. Um, numbers range all the way from the hundreds of thousands to um, even one million Aboriginal peoples in, That's over just the, the estimate of right. Kind of the, right, it's hard to tell, especially with yeah. prehistory, but um, roughly. Um, yeah, roughly a million people is what's theorized. So, um, there were a hunter-gatherer culture, so pretty similar to American American natives, um, which means you know obviously they would hunter and they would hunt around and fish, and they would also forage um, amongst vegetables and plants in the wild. Um, but some recent discoveries have led researchers to believe that agriculture um, or something known as um, Aquaculture uh, was was done by the Aboriginal people, and aquaculture is pretty much agriculture, but it's the cultivation of um, sea life, whether that be fish um, that were bred, or different algae's or aquatic plants were also cultivated um, and used. Crustaceans and things like. Right. So crustaceans, different things like anything that. Anything that's in the water. Aquatic it? plants, you no. know, algae, seaweed, anything things you like can that. eat
2: and is in the water. Right.
1: Right. Pretty much. Farming, but done yeah. by the sea. So um, that's been theorized um, with some evidence that's been found in recent discoveries. Um, and as discussed in the William Buckley documentary we watched in class, um, the Aboriginal peoples were known for migrating. So depending on the seasons, um, the Aboriginal people of Australia would migrate to different parts of the continent. Um this would also allowed uh, allow some of the land to replenish its natural resources, such as fr- fruits and vegetables that they would forage for, and also allowed you know wildlife populations to to replenish after the hunting. Um, so once they would seasonally migrate back to an area they had already come from, the um, the natural resources would would have returned. Um, and due to this cycle that they had contrived, it was actually pretty pretty intelligently planned. Mm-hmm. Um, only four to five hours of labor, it's theorized, were used per day to to wow. maintain a livelihood. So, wow. um, compared to the American, strangely compared to the American work day um, in modern right. society,
2: or like even the like American Revolutionary era, they spent like what, probably like twelve hours a day right. farming and, and shit, just just making sure that they can you know survive. And four to five hours is. Sure, right. It's a lot of free time.
1: Yeah, I know it is. And so that's something really interesting that they talk about um, with the free time that the four to five hours allowed for is why um, it's said that Aboriginal peoples have actually probably one of the richest um, and most maintained of Native cultures. Um, it's just because they had so much time to develop it. Um, there were over 200 different languages spoken amongst the Aboriginal tribes, and um, and as you said, you know that work day gave them a lot of free time. So a lot of religious and spiritual development was was focused on. Um, and as we've learned in class, and also through some of my own research, um, it is seen that, you know, they had a lot of spiritual spiritualism and a lot of religion um, in their culture. Um, we've touched briefly on the kind of cryptic nature of dream time um, mm-hmm. and their strong connection to dreaming. Um, and they believed that that was a uh, connection to the spiritual realm, and they believed that you could, you know, interact with the, the spirit world and gain strength from it um, in the dream time or other forms of consciousness. Um, the people also focused strongly on kinship. Their culture focused really um, really largely on the idea of family. Um, And that's not entirely too different from American culture, but it did differ in some ways. So um, patriarchal figures, um, such as fathers, were not just biological fathers. So what we would consider uncles today, um, the aboriginals would also refer to their uncles as fathers. So it's fathers were fathers, uncles were fathers, grandfathers, anything Mm. in the patriarchal line. Um, Same with mothers, aunts. Were they a, a patriarchal society or was it like fully
2: male dominated or
1: right so so it was it was kind of you know, it was mostly patriarchal. so men were definitely the forefront. Um, and as discussed in the um, William Buckley documentary, you know, it might seem crass today, but um, women were often looked at as a commodity mm. um, right But yes, no, it was definitely more of a patriarchal society. But interestingly enough, on that note, there wasn't much hierarchical structure to um, Aboriginal culture, so where in other parts of polynesia um, excuse me in other parts of the pacific islands mm. and um and in other countries and tribes, we saw you know the practice of the big man um, yeah. and large patriarchal figures that ruled over the populace. that's not. That was not as common amongst the Aboriginals. There actually wasn't really any leadership. It was more of a level playing field for all of the for all of the inhabitants. One of
2: the other areas of the Pacific Islanders was similar to that. I don't. Was it? It might have been Melanesia was less. I, I can't. Yeah. I can't off the top of my head remember, but I, I feel right. like I remember one of them being pretty similar to that as well. Right. Of like a less
1: hierarchical society. Which yeah. is which is interesting compared to um, Europe. You know, in a lot of ways, Europe has been hierarchical since its inception and same with the United States to an extent, maybe to a lesser than Europe. But um, especially if you go back to like the natives. I
2: don't know. Right. I haven't really done too much study on Native Americans and like their society structures, but. Right. Right.
1: Um, But yeah, no. Anyway, in continuation of that, um, kind of tying more into Andrea's points regarding the penal colonies. Aboriginal interaction with the original colonists um, ranged from peaceful to violent. It was kind of an equal balance from what I've gathered. Um, You know, some good interactions, a lot of poor interactions. And as Andrea said, as time went on, they were often viewed more as a thorn in the side of the British settlers and colonists coming into the Australian continent. So um, with time, um, they they were progressively treated worse, actually. And um, as Andrea said, that started in 1788 when the British first landed in Australia. Um, interestingly enough, though, uh, as we learned in class through the documentary, William Buckley was a pretty unique story in that, um, you know, where most Australians um, or Australian settlers did not take much of a um, they didn't have much of an attempt to understand um, Aboriginal culture and society. Um, William Buckley, you know, born out of necessity, you know, you might right. say. Um, he did, however, come to have a pretty um, pretty unique understanding of the Aboriginal community, especially before what was to come for the Aborigines um, with, with the Stolen Generations, mm. um, and so it's pretty interesting that uh, that culture has, while still with us today, has been a- greatly diminished, unfortunately. Um, and he got to have a pretty unique understanding of that before it went away. Um, and going right into the Stolen Generations, that started pretty pretty early uh, unofficially. So around 1865, um, the ending of the American Civil War, um was when Australia really started, the, or the British government, rather, really started to step up its um, oppression and ethno, you know, you could say, ethnic cleansing of the Aboriginal peoples. Um, as we talked about, they were starting to be, as time progressed, looked at as more of a nuisance than a, um, than a cultural strong point.
2: And was it, I mean, you probably talk about it more, but was it like an active, more of a genocide or like kind of a slow burn... Like
1: ethnocide. So it which, was you know. It was definitely more of a slower a slower process of an right. ethnocide um, through much more subtle means of destruction rather right. than what we see maybe later in the Germans' Holocaust of the Jewish people. Yeah, like that. That's a little more on the nose. But what happened in Australia was just as sinister but right. um, carried out um, in a much more, I guess, secretive means. Right. Um So that started, as I said, in 1865, but really it came into worse effect starting in the 1910s. Uh, The 1910s were really um, the first we saw of actual legislation being made that would um, encroach on the rights of aboriginal peoples and um, start the separation of aboriginal families.
0: That's when Uh, they put up that rabbit fence. Proof
1: fence, right? Right. So the rabbit proof fence was in the same time period. That's about you know the nineteen hundreds was when we first kind of see the Australian colonists building the rabbit proof fence, mm-hmm. and um, as in the movie <clears throat> that it was that it's got uh, gotten its name from. It played a pretty you know big part in the story of some of the escapees from the institutions of the British colonists. Um, so yeah, this and this didn't just stop, you know. A lot of people, you know, look at events like this in history. And in the United States, we kind of see this go on into the early 1900s, um, this mistreatment of natives. And, you know, from from the 1830s all the way until, you know, the early 1900s, turn of the century, um, this was happening in the United States as well to a lesser extent.
2: I mean, even later than that, um, and they were later. breaking treaties. It was just less, I think, less... Um deliberate right. and more of just a carelessness. Right. Whereas right. it sounds like this was more of a deliberate attempt to... Exactly.
1: Right. And this carried in Australia, like uh, like I said, unlike the United States and Australia, this happened all the way into the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So into, into recent and modern history this was still going on. Um, and unlike events like the Trail of Tears and the Massacre at Wounded Knee, um, Australians can more directly cha- trace... Um, their family's involvement with the stolen generations. So um, I have a couple numbers here and a couple um, just statistics that talk about that. Um, There were 480 institutions used to um, re-educate the Australian children that were kidnapped, the Aboriginal children, and um, they were often denied cultural practices and we see it in rabbit-proof fence but um, I think one of the major losses that's not so discussed is the, um, is the. The British government, Australian government, prohibited uh, the Aboriginals from using their native languages.
2: Yeah, this that reminds me. Of, have you heard of Canadian uh, residential schools?
1: Uh, I actually have. Yeah, right. it
2: sounds a lot like that. Like very similar. Right.
1: No, yeah, and it was very similar. And yeah. if you think about it, you know.
2: Canada and Australia have very similar backgrounds. Very
1: similar backgrounds, and they're yeah. also satellite nations yeah. of Britain, so, yeah. um, or, or daughter nations of Britain. So a lot of the same practices were employed in both.
2: That British imperial right. swagger.
1: Oh, yeah, the British imperial swagger definitely touched right. North America as well as the right. uh, Terra, Terra Australis incognito. Um But anyway, just to kind of uh, wrap up that discussion, the the denial of their language I I find to be actually a pretty pretty big moment in the aboriginal history, um, a pretty big tragedy. Um, I think most, I I have a personal belief that most cultural identity is is kept in its language. Um, And I think you see that with, you know, the... uh, the great nations and the great dynasties of of our past of human civilization um, an example of that being rome you know latin is now a dead language um, and as it's died out i feel like so has a lot of roman cultural practice and roman ideas uh, now that's not entirely true but um just because rome was such a large culture but especially for something small such as aboriginal or native cultures losing a native language with its own expressions and uh Terms of speech is a pretty colossal loss, mm. um, but as I said, a little more statistically, um, seven, roughly seventeen thousand uh, survivors of the Stolen Generation exist today. Um, they still live in Australia. Um, it's reported that over one third of Aboriginal people today are descendants of stolen of a, uh, of a stolen child, um, and in Western Australia, it's up to half the population is linked to the kidnapping. So. Um, as I said, even more than um, even more than some some of the native atrocities in the United States, it's pretty clear and present in the mind of Australians, and um, it actually wasn't until two thousand eight that the Prime Minister of Australia, um, Kevin Rudd, actually made an official apology uh, to the Stolen Generations and their families. So um, that's in you know in our lifetimes, uh, even to the youngest of uh, people in academia, it's mm. it's still pretty recent so um yeah and then i think that bleeds pretty pretty easily into into aiden's line of discussion with modern australian history
2: yeah i kind of took a more broad approach to uh, a bit of a a wider time frame so i kind of started post andrea's uh penal colony discussion and then went through tours i mean really i think i stopped around the 70s just because around the 70s and 80s kind of Western culture, especially, bleeds pretty much very similar together. So a lot of what right. Australia ha- happened from the 80s to the to right now is very similar culturally to like what we experienced in America during that time. Politically, okay. obviously, they have their
1: own stuff going on. Right. With the with the 70s, I mean, yeah. I believe Australia was also involved in the Vietnam War. So yeah, a, I think so. Yeah, there was a pretty big connection. They
2: were involved, they had, a, Australia has historically had a pretty heavy connection to America since World mm. War II, which I'll get into a little bit. Right. But, so, a, a lot of what America did, like, they were involved with, um, they were heavily involved with the, all of the Cold War throughout that whole period. Oh, right, right. Like makes that. sense. So, yeah. But, yeah, so I started after the Pinot Colonies, um, and effectively, the Pinot Colonies were pretty much abolished and changed to, like, a more... more like traditional type of colony around the 1850s to 60s, um, when the uh, colonial governments and the British Parliament as well began uh, abolishing the practice of transporting the, the criminals to Australia, they, uh, due to some colonial pressure, they stopped doing that because right. it wasn't. They didn't love having criminals constantly shipped to their shores. Um, right. Um, but yeah, so after that, they sh- kind of started forming their own individual colonies. Um, among them were New South Wales, Queensland, all those kinds of places. But, uh, basically, what is now most of what are now Australian states, okay. um, were kind of what formed these colonies, and they were very uh, independent from each other, much like you know the American states prior to the right. to the forming of the Constitution. Um, they had. Uh, A decent amount of interconnection, especially in the later parts of the uh, 1800s, mostly due to threats from uh, outside forces. They were pretty afraid of, due to their kind of isolated position from England and Britain and the rest of the empire, they were pretty afraid of uh, invasion from both European and Asian countries, but especially, you know, like Japan has historically always kind of looked southward for invasion... That makes um, sense. Yeah, so they they decided to start um, attempting to form a constitution with each other, with one another. Uh, they formed a convention uh, in eighteen fifty or eighteen eighty five, excuse me, um, uh, and they held several meetings, several conventions from eighteen ninety one to eighteen ninety seven, uh, and which eventually led to the formation of a constitutional draft. And then in nineteen o one, the Commonwealth of Australia was formed. And wow. 19, 1901. Um, 1901, yeah. Pretty, that's a lot. Pretty late in the in the kind of run of things. I, so. I guess
1: I never realized how young of a country Australia yeah. really is. Because, I mean, at that point, you know, America's been around for, you know, for what, 130 years mm-hmm. roughly? Something like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which About is pretty... That.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, at the, around this point is when America's, what, starting their uh, starting industrial the, revolution right, and right. everything like that. So
1: a lot of, you know, and that's an era where we just saw... You know, the first instances of public electricity, street streetcars, yeah, yeah. um, the incandescent light bulb, um, Graham Bell's invention of the telephone. So yeah. really, Australia kind of got to, you know, in spite of its colonial phase at the start of the inception of its nation, um, that means they really got to experience right off the bat a lot of the luxuries of the
2: well, 20th century. One of the funny things about them was they... Probably really didn't was interestingly enough. A lot of the uh, their culture was very, especially during this point, and even up until like the fifties and sixties, was very focused around like being a laborer and being Hmm. an agriculture, and very you know like you think of like the traditional
1: bushwhacking Australian. Very, very much
2: like that. So I don't, I'm not, I didn't get a lot of information about kind of like when they received.
1: Right, probably um, outside of city centers. It was pretty rural. Yeah, it was pretty pretty rural. rural, Outside
2: of of like Sydney and Brisbane and and places like that. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, so 1901, uh, Commonwealth of Australia was formed. And and initially, and for quite a while, it was a pretty federal uh, conglomerate of states and less of a united country and more just, in like I don't know how much you know about like the uh, Constitution, the original Constitution of the United States, the Articles of Confederation. Right. But it was much more similar to that, where they kind of retained their individual powers right. and gave very little power to the to the national government. Kind
1: of, kind of loosely connected until a yeah. time of crisis. More of like a like a
2: protection pact. and right, less, of right, a, right. less of a you know united country. Um. Uh, a couple of interesting facts about the beginning of uh, of this country was that women's suffrage was enacted in 1902 um, which was okay. earlier than United States obviously right um, by
1: about by about seventeen years seventeen
2: years earlier uh, 16, obviously um, however Aboriginal peoples were denied citizenship right off the bat right. um, so that was you know <clears throat> lovely sounds so, familiar yeah <laughs> And then um, uh, from the periods of 1900 to 1945, so uh, the end of the F- Second World War, Australia's culture remained pretty similar to what it had been, really focusing on nationalism, industrialization, right. agriculturalism, and labor. Um, labor parties, uh, which they, we talked about a little bit today, but labor parties have been a pretty big uh, part of Australian culture just because of how gung-ho they are about labor and right. you know, like working for themselves and that kind of thing. Um, during this period of time, for, so the forty-five years from the turn of the century, the government kind of continued to further develop their policies of like racism and discrimination against right. specifically the Aborigines, but also just about anyone else who wasn't a white um, who wasn't white. They uh, in the I think it was the nineteen tens they started to form policies that are con- collectively known as the white Australian immigration policies. Um, basically, they restricted all immigration to uh, northern and western European countries. So um, I
1: find that I find that pretty fascinating. Yeah. I know, um, I know, America dealt with some of that, but yeah. it almost sounds like, to a greater extent, yeah, it was it was in Australia that they were a little even more picky than the United States yeah. was regarding the racial immigrants. United States seems to kind of
2: like pick and choose more with like they were. They've specifically they went I don't there was like a Chinese immigration act where Right. They specifically right. banned Chinese. I would
1: say right. a lot of a lot of Asian immigration yeah, blocking yeah. happened in the United States around the Western uh around the frontier era yeah, of the yeah. United States. So pretty interesting though. I guess I just never I never realized the same thing yeah, mean, with Australia.
2: To a further extent it seems like they just kind of were like, No, if you're not white, we don't want you here, right, which is come. which is really interesting because um we'll talk about it a little later, but a good portion of the population currently is, is Asian. Um, really? In, in Australia huh. currently, yeah. I did um, it, it probably comes down to a lot of uh, proximity, how close a lot That's of true. they are to a lot of those Indonesian, Indo-Chinese countries. Right, right. But yeah, so um, uh, leading up to World War One, Australia started becoming prepared for war. Um, they were still heavily connected to the British Empire, obviously. They were still right. um, under the... Uh, under the crown. They had their own right. individual parliament and everything, but they were still under the British crown.
1: I was going to say, well, so. what if, uh, if 1901 was their inception and World War One started in 1918, then they would have only been, or sorry, 19, excuse me, 1914, Fourteen, yeah. then they only would have been a nation for 13 For a few years, yeah. So years. they were
2: still really more, right. I, they were looking at it themselves and, and from the rest of the world, more of a kind of Part of the empire and less of their own individual countries. Right, at this right, point. right. But at this point, there had been a little bit of anti British sentiment, but generally the population okay. was kind of more in support of supporting England and going to war. So. Right, right. Uh, in World War One, 330,000 Australians served, uh, wow. 60,000 died, and 165,000 suffered uh, grievous wounds. Oh, wow. So they're in the uh, higher percentage of. Um, casualties in the First right, World War.
1: Roughly half of them, it sounds like. Yeah.
2: Um, then, and they had a significantly higher uh, casualty and wound rate than, than most other countries for, wow. for various reasons. Um, the most famous engagement, this is just a bit of a tidbit, um, the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps known as ANZAC was the uh, Dardanelles campaign um, and the day of landing in Gallipoli, which was a failed campaign to right. take Turkey. So, and then after the war, um, a lot of, there was a a heavy stream of veterans and while they'd been away, there'd been a a bit of a surge of liberalistic, liberalism, uh, you know, social and political ideals and uh, the people who had stayed hoped that the veterans would kind of support that liberalism um, for, I mean, and come back with like a a new view on it, but they actually returned as a bastion of conservatism and Hmm. were, Heavily involved in uh, gaining power for the conservative political parties in Australia. That's um, interesting. It was, yeah, it is pretty interesting to me that they all came back and were just, you know, very, very. Wanted. I guess they wanted to stick to what they they'd been protecting.
1: So. Right. Well, I mean, something interesting about that is that um, that actually happened essentially with the United States as right. well. Yes, um, in with the same war with World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time veterans had returned. Uh, was when women got the right to vote in the United States right, after right. World War One. so um, you almost see a direct, yeah. almost a worldwide kind of shift into a more liberally minded um, campaign yeah. um, and, and on the home front after the war. So I, I, I don't know why, but the parallel to the United States there is pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, uh, There must be something to do with you know, going to war and right. coming back five years later. Things have changed, and
1: well, you, you don't
2: really want them to change. So
1: Yeah, well, and, you know, I think a big a big part of that is that um, people on the home front are living an entirely separate life from right, people on right, the front yeah. lines of a war. I mean, a you basically have to conflict. stop
2: living your life for those five years. You're fighting right. a warrior in trenches. Right. You know. So pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah that, is, that is an interesting um, kind of parallel there. But, uh, yeah, after the war... Um, they had uh, kind of just a a little bit of an economic prosperity, but not too heavy. It was kind of just, a, you know, it was kind of just the regular years they went through. Uh, nothing really changed all that much. Um, they suffered a bit from the global depression in the '30s, but not as heavily as like America or England. Right, um, and they bounced pretty heavily back from it. Um, so. Then, uh, you know, World War II is rapidly approaching. At this point, culturally, they'd become a little bit more independent from England. Um, and there was a pretty heavy anti-war sentiment. Uh, or not anti-war sentiment, but they weren't nearly as, like, gung-ho about it as they had been for World War I. But right. uh, when the call came, they still responded. Um, and about 35,000 soldiers died this time around, so uh, around half. And 65,000 were injured, so a little bit less um, damaging for them. All right, mass casualties, yeah. definitely lower. Uh, definitely lower, probably just because they, I think their response was less enthusiastic than right. it had been for well, the
1: first war. And that makes sense because, I mean, as we said before, World War One came with only 13 years of yeah. um, of the Australian Commonwealth being established, while World War Two comes around with, you know, what, roughly almost 50 years, yeah. Oh well, more like 30, 40 30, years 40 of years independence. Years, so yeah. um, definitely definitely, probably more of a uh, a national identity amongst Australians as opposed to uh, having a national identity amongst British
2: Yeah, and, and you kind of get the vibe colonists. that a lot of them were very m- much so more focused on protecting themselves from uh, invasion. Japan right, from specifically Japanese, right. was uh, attempting to invade um, uh, Papua New Guinea and New Zealand and then eventually Australia. Right. Um and so, I, I, from my research, I kind of got more of an idea that they spent a majority of their time focused on defending the, their homeland and, you know, on the Pacific front. But uh, during World War II, um, Australia became heavily, heavily connected to the United States. Um, the U.S. obviously had a big part in the Pacific front, um, and they began to set up uh, a decent amount of. Um, uh, what would the word be for... They, they had a lot of uh, military outposts. Just a lot of out. defenses and yeah, forward it, operating bases. On Australia, um, especially um, the northern coast sort of. Right. And, um, so during this time, American culture kind of began to, began to seep into the Australian identity. And so post-war, uh, the cultural conservatism of Australia kind of fell out of popularity. And it was replaced by more of the, you know, f- 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 more liberal, like, you know, progressive just whatever. more progressive. Movement. Yeah, more yeah. progressive. And not even, like, socially progressive necessarily, but, like, technologically progressive. and Okay. And, like, that, that of the American culture. They um, had a huge popular culture boom. Uh, rock music, you know, right. jazz, just about everything. And eventually... Um, Cars, mass-produced cars and everything like that. And then, right. yeah, so they had an economic boom uh, pretty much right after the Second World War. Uh, they increased their exports heavily and uh, began to kind of especially dive deeper into this more, um, more independent Australian identity um, separate from really anyone else but heavily mm. influenced, obviously, by sure. a lot of people. Um, kind of just to close things up, around uh, the 1960s, um, under the Prime Minister Shifley, the government began to ease on immigration policies that we talked about earlier. Um, they started to open up, especially to people of Indo Chinese descent, um, which had a really positive impact on their economy. Their economy boomed because of their opening of, of immigration. Um, and, you know, from the 60s onwards through the 70s and 80s, they kind of, I think, fully relaxed those immigration policies. Um, uh, a note on kind of present-day Aboriginal um, and present and more modern Aboriginal um, right. treatment. The estimated number of persons of Aboriginal ascent um rose from 73,000 in 1933 to around 170,000 in the early 1980s. Oh, wow. Yeah, and as far as I know, has still been climbing pretty steadily. Um, They've received a lot of uh, franchisement, more than they had um, for, you know, the entire history of the the country previously. Oh, yeah. And in 1962, they were finally given citizenship and counted in the national census.
1: Um, so treated wow. as human beings. That's crazy. It took uh, it took that long. You yeah. know, I think I think that's all a pretty wild story regarding the Aboriginal. And I think it's interesting that you touched on their population has since yeah. kind of rebounded because that's something that I feel like you actually didn't see with the U.S. Even though they may have saved face with their policies and treatment of the Native Americans, I don't think we you know, I don't have any empirical evidence sitting in front of me, but I don't think you've really heard of a cultural or um, population bounce back for the Native Americans. And I think it's interesting that you've seen that with such an oppressed group as the Aboriginal people. To some degree,
2: there has been, I
1: think, less of um, Yeah, especially with kind of
2: bigger tribes like the Cherokee Nations and stuff like that. They've had a bit more of a a rebound. Um, That's fair. That's especially fair. post-World War One and post-World War Two, there was a pretty big resurgence in kind of uh, this independent cultural movement that right. you see. I think you see it in a lot of, you know, oppressed minorities, especially the natives, native people right. whose land it has been, they have this kind of push to bring their culture back, which I think is really, really cool. So it's, right. it's the same for right. the that aboriginals. Yeah. Um, I wanted to make a quick correction. I spoke wrong the uh, Australian citizenship was given in 1948 it was they were counted in the census was the 62 gotcha um, okay. but the citizen citizenship was uh, extended to all Australians still in interesting
1: that still interesting that they gave them citizenship right. prior to counting them in the census right that an interesting It's almost like you know they wanted to, of ignore offer, the fact that existence. Yeah, existed. Still. They wanted to offer the benefits of citizenship without having to acknowledge publicly to the world um, right. the presence of a, of a minority group, which right. is pretty, pretty interesting. I feel like that's not a very common thing you hear about.
2: Yeah, but. I mean, especially more m- modernly, you've seen countries kind of embracing their darker sides of colonialism, things like that. So right, right, right. That is kind of, kind of that push towards you know honesty, I guess. Uh, But yeah, um, current uh, curriculum in schools um, is sympathetic towards Aboriginal culture. They teach Aboriginal culture towards all Australians. Um, And it has been, um, they've shifted kind of away from that assimilationist ideals that they had previously. And currently, although obviously nothing is perfect, um, they're moving towards a um, uh, a more united culture that's not, um, trying to erase any one person's culture. Right, and right. So, yeah, so that's
1: kind of about where I ended up. Um, so, yeah. Well, cool. Thanks, y'all. This yeah. has been a uh, a history of Australia in its whole um, regarding penal colonies, aboriginals, and the modern history.
2: Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thanks.
1: And... That's a rev. That's a rev.